I was bitter and I thought, like, what does this mean? Like, now you're different all of a sudden. Things just escalated really far. It's probably my ultimate low. To give me a second chance. I didn't feel like God would forgive me for that. I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. I basically lost my brother for 10 years. My brother was basically my superhero. Not your typical superhero. He's a nerdy superhero, but still to me, you know, he's my older brother and I just wanted to be like him. And then uh, when he went off to college, he got into drugs and just the partying scene. And he changed a lot for me, um, going from superhero, someone I wanted to be like and emulate, to wow, this is, this is not what I want to be like. I got to see firsthand how how much of a wreck he was, spending all his time, you know, doing drugs, not motivated to do anything, and it, it created a, uh, a bitter environment for me. It was painful um, to watch someone you love and, and watch them waste their life. When he was, you know, in college doing these drugs, I basically lost my brother for 10 years. Then one day, my brother walked in the door, and he was a different person. I knew something was different. He was clean, and he said, I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Should have been a happy time for me if I had understood what that meant, but I was bitter, and I thought, like, what does this mean? Like, now you're different all of a sudden? You know, you're gone for 10 years, and then one day you come in and you're a different person. And to be honest, I was, I was testing him. I didn't believe it. I did not trust that he was different in any way. And I pushed him and tested him. And where times when I would get upset and we would get in a fight normally, he he didn't. He he was humble and he was telling me, you know, you shouldn't do these things. And that was not fun for me. I mean, I was mad. <laughs> you know, who are you to tell me this? You've been doing nothing with your life for 10 years and then all of a sudden you're gonna tell me I should stop doing these things and you know, I should be a better person. Like I was the better person. I mean, it took me years to figure it out that this was real and that, you know, Jesus can change you. Since that time when I realized my brother has done nothing but been my example of faith. Like my faith is much stronger because of my brother. He taught me who the real superhero was and that was Jesus Christ and I fully believe and understand and live that now because of the example that my brother gave me for the past 25 years since he was changed. I love that story. It's good to see you guys this weekend. If you're here for the first time, uh, we're in a series that we're calling Lost and Found. It's based on probably the most familiar story that Jesus ever told. It's based on the story of the prodigal son. But really, when you get into the stories you're going to see this weekend, it's really a story about two sons, both with issues. It's also the story of a father who loved these guys, whether they had issues or not, loved his boys unconditionally. Now, if you've been around up to this point, you know we spent most of our time talking about the younger brother, the one that left home, the one that went prodigal. But this weekend, we're going to shift our focus to the older brother who stayed home. And we're going to address what I refer to as the older brother syndrome. So that's what we're going to be talking about this weekend. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. If not, 
Uh, we're going to put the verses up on the screen, but let me just bring you up to speed in the story. It's a story, as I said, of a father who had two sons, and one day his younger son said, hey, Dad, I want my you know, Merrill Lynch trust fund so that I can go out and chase my dreams, experience life the way I want to experience it. And the father didn't argue with him. He gave him his share of the estate, his share of the inheritance. And it says, not many days after. So he'd been thinking about this. He takes off. Uh, he goes crazy. I mean, he is living the prodigal, wild life until one day he realizes he's broke. And also there's a famine. And so he can't find work. He has nothing to eat. And he ends up working for a hog farmer, slopping his hogs, right? Waiting for the hogs to finish eating. Hopefully there would be something left over that he could eat. That's about as bad as it gets. And I imagine this young man one day sitting up against a fence post in that pigsty, waiting for the hogs to finish to see if he would get to eat anything, right? Right? And he's thinking, this is stupid. I mean, how dumb is this? My dad has servants back home who are living an incredible life. I mean, they got shelter, three meals a day. They wear clean uniforms every day. And here I am living and eating in this pig pen. I'm going to go home and see daddy. I'm going to go home to the father. And he begins to make his way home. Well, one day the father wanders out to the end of the driveway to pick up the newspaper. And he looks and there's the silhouette of his son. He knows it's him. And he runs and he embraces him and he welcomes him home. In fact, he kisses him all over. I mean, he's so excited to see this young boy that has come home. And he's like, you know what? We're going to throw a party. We're going to throw a party. Get all the family together. Let's get all your friends together. And we're going to celebrate the fact that you were lost, but now you are found. So they plan this big party, and it starts happening. And meanwhile, the older brother, the one we're going to talk about this weekend, he's been out in the field working, and he makes his way back to the house, and he hears the band playing and the music and the laughter, and there's dancing going on, and he sees a servant, and he says, what's the hoopla all about? And the servant's like, man, haven't you heard? Bubba's back, right? And your dad killed that calf that we've been fattening up, right? And he is barbecuing that bad boy. We are having the social event of the year. And when the older brother hears this, obviously, right, he's excited. No, he's not excited. He's not, oh, I'm so relieved that he's back. I've been worried sick about, no, no. He's angry. He's livid. He's ticked. So he doesn't go to the celebration. He goes upstairs to his room, and he's sulking, and he's pouting, you know, and Finally, the dad realizes what's going on, so he excuses himself from the table, and he goes upstairs and knocks on the young man's room and goes in, and he says, what are you doing? He tries to talk some sense into him, tries to encourage him to come down and enjoy the celebration. But I want you to notice the older brother's response in Luke chapter 15, verse 29. Look what he says. All these years, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, not my brother, when this son of yours, here the passive aggressive, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now understand what you just read. That is an example of the older brother syndrome. And it's when we look down on other people because we see ourselves as better than we see them. Now understand, this is how the Pharisees in Jesus' day operated. In fact, this is why Jesus told this parable in the first place. Look what it says, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, the beginning of the chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around him. In other words, they were hanging out with Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told him this parable. And it's here that Jesus tells them the trilogy. That he tells them about the lost sheep. He tells them about the lost coin. He tells them about the lost son. But I want you to understand, all three of these stories Jesus told, not just 
because something was lost and it's found, although that's a big part of the story. He actually told these stories to address the older brother syndrome. So what I want to do this weekend, this is kind of simple. I want to show you three uh, negative effects of the older brother syndrome. I'll give you the first one and we'll just pack it, unpack it. The older brother syndrome affects how we see ourselves. As Christians, it affects how we see ourselves. Uh, do you remember how the older brother saw himself? Go back to chapter 15 of Luke, verse 29. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your order. He sees himself as perfect. He's never done anything wrong. He's never made a mistake. He's perfect. And when you see yourself as perfect, that can only come from one place, right? That can only come from a place of pride. So here's the question. Where does pride come from? As Christians, where does that pride come from? Well, let me show you Luke chapter 18. Let's go to a different story, verse 9. Jesus is speaking again to some who were confident of their own self-righteousness, of their own righteousness. In other words, from their perspective, they're in a good place with God. They're okay with God, right? So those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. By the way, whenever you read through the New Testament, you'll read a lot about Pharisees and tax collectors. Let me help you a little bit. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, they were all Jewish religious leaders who were out to get Jesus. They hated Jesus. They just hated him. So you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those are the main two groups. Let me tell you how you can uh, tell the difference. Pharisees thought they were better than everyone else, more spiritual than everyone else. Therefore, they looked down on everyone else. So they, are you ready for this? This is very profound. They were fair, you see. You'll never forget this. The Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, in, in life after death. They didn't believe any of that. So they were sad, you see. See, so you'll never forget that. So here we have the Pharisees, but then we also have a tax collector. Whenever you read tax collector in the Gospels, they are the really, 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 really worst, bad, horrible sinners of all. And it's because these tax collectors were Jewish who were hired by the Romans. Remember, the Jews were living under Roman, under Roman rule. They were hired by the Romans to collect taxes from other Jews. So here you have these Jewish tax collectors getting taxes from fellow Jews and then giving the money to Rome. And they were despicable. They were despised. So, so whenever you see tax collector, it's basically these are the worst people on the earth, right? So it says two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is what Jesus says. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, in other words, the Pharisee, the religious jerk, right? I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And then Jesus gives us the principle. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But I want you to understand the root of pride is self-righteous. And see, when we're self-righteous, we believe that our good works, our good deeds, our good behavior somehow places us in a right standing with God. It makes us righteous before God. In fact, that's what the word righteous means. It means that we are in a right standing with God just by our good works, our good deeds, our good behavior. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that we should be good people. I believe that as Christians, we should live moral lives. I believe we should be good citizens. I believe that we should pay our taxes. Some of you won't like this, but I believe that we honor those that God puts in positions over us in our country because it tells us in Romans chapter 13, 
Every person that's been established in a position has been established by God. By the way, Paul wrote that, and you know who was ruling when Paul wrote? Nero, who was burning Christians at the stake. We don't have it that bad yet, do we? Right? But I believe that we should live this way. I believe all of these things. I believe we should go to church. I believe we should serve other people. I believe we should be generous with our resources. But I also believe that no matter how good we are, no matter how good our lives are, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to make us righteous. It's never going to put us back into a right standing with God. The only way we can be righteous, the only way we can be in a right standing with God is through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross that he died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could be restored and reconciled back into a relationship with God. And when we accept what Jesus did for us, we accept that gift of salvation, God stamps across our life righteous. That's our position. That's how he sees us. We're in a right standing before God. Now, let me just say something here. You don't become self-righteous as a Christian until you've been a Christian for a while. I mean, when you first get saved, you know it's grace. Somebody said, I just want you to know, the only thing that got you in was grace. You're like, I got it. Man, the only thing that could save me, I'm a loser, was the grace of God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. So when you first get saved, you get it as grace. But then when you've been a Christian about 10 years, 15 years, maybe 20 years, you're leading a small group, teaching a class. Maybe you got, maybe you got hired on the church staff. You read your Bible. You pray every morning. You're giving. You're serving. You're not having an affair. You haven't murdered anybody lately, you know. And before you know it, you're sitting around your house one day thinking, you know what? I'm pretty good. I mean, I've actually really kind of got it going on spiritually. And I think, honestly, God got a pretty good deal when he got me. See, we begin to think that way, right? So we begin to think like very highly of ourselves and we forget that we're just a nasty old sinner. Just a nasty old sinner saved by the grace of God. But when you begin to think that way, that's self-righteousness. Go back to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. By the way, anytime you see yourself as better than, you have to see other people as worse than. Anytime you look up to you because you're so good, you naturally have to look down at everyone else. I mean, think about what the Pharisee said in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I am not as screwed up as the rest of these people. Now be honest. You ever say something like that? You ever think something like that? Well, if you do, you might, you might suffer from the older brother syndrome. And, and just in case you're not sure whether you suffer, let me give you some, 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 some symptoms of the older brother syndrome. Here's one. You would rather judge people than help people. I mean, when someone falls, when someone blows it, Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 says that we're to restore one another. And that word restore means you get up under the burden that they're carrying and you help them carry it. In other words, when you want to restore someone, the number one question you should be asking them day in and day out is, what can I do for you today? How can I help you today? How can I help you bear that burden today? Now, do you do that or would you rather just leave them alone, wallow in their mess and judge them? Because here's the reality. When we judge them, oh man, we even look better, Right? So that's the first symptom. You'd rather judge people than help people. Here's the second one. You're disappointed when people don't get what, they think, what you think they deserve. You ever feel like, oh, they kind of got off easy, right? You want them to be humiliated. You want, them, you want them to pay an extreme price for their behavior. Here's another one. You're angry when it appears that God blesses others more than you. I mean, yeah, you go to church, you serve, you do all these things, and you got a neighbor, they don't go to church, they get, they get a raise, they bought a boat, they got a brand new car, and you're like, God, hello, I'm the good, I'm the good son. 
I'm the good daughter. What's going on here, God? Here's another one. You often say, I would never do that. Do you ever find that when you're, I would never do that. I would never do that. I'll never forget about 20 years ago when a lady at the church, she first found out that I had a bunch of tattoos. I mean, her eyes started fluttering and they rolled back a little bit. And she, I would never do that. And I smiled. I said, but you want to. It was a beautiful funeral. It really, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. She's still here. I saw her last week. We still love it. We, have, we often kid about this. Do you ever find yourself, I would never. No, you'll do all kinds of stuff. Maybe you wouldn't do exactly that, right? But that, that's the older brothers, that's self-righteousness, and it affects the way we see ourselves because, see, I'm better than you. I see myself as better than you. Second, the older brother syndrome affects how we see others. In other words, if we're going to see others as better, if we're going to see ourselves as better than others, we have to see other people worse than we are. They're worse than we are. So look how it affects how we see others. Look what it says. Let me show you another story. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house. This guy showing up all over the place, right? And reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, just to give you a heads up, she was a prostitute. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, so he's thinking this. He's only thinking this. If this man, referencing Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of huzzy this is that's touching him, right? And that she's a sinner. Now, what does it say? Jesus answered. So he reads his mind. He reads this Pharisee's mind. He knows what he's thinking. And so what he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Well, he doesn't know that Jesus just read his mind. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus said, okay, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage, so about 500 days worth of wages. The other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. For whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And I love this story. And one of the reasons I love this story so much is because it does not teach what we think it teaches it actually teaches the opposite. See, we think, we read this in our daily quiet time. We think this story teaches that there are some people around us who are really, really, really tax collector category, bad, 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 horrible sinners. And so when they get saved, when they become Christians, they've been forgiven of a lot. Therefore, since they've been forgiven of so much, out of gratitude, out of appreciation, they love Jesus so much. And on the surface, that makes sense. And then there are other people you know, who aren't as bad. Maybe you grew up very morally. Maybe, maybe you've been in church in and out all of your life. You know, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't chew, you don't date people who do. You don't even have a cat. I mean, you are a really, really good person. And since you're not that bad, I mean, when you become a Christian, you don't need to be forgiven of a lot. You need to only be forgiven of a little bit. And since you only need to be forgiven of a little bit, well, you just can't be as grateful. You can't be as appreciative to Jesus for what he's done for you. So you don't love him as much. And that's what we think the story teaches. Now, here's the problem with that logic. Stick with me. 
Laura is a much better person than I will ever be. She is darn near a saint. One big mistake in her life. Mwah. Just so you know. Okay. So if you adhere to that, this story, that what we've always been taught, for Laura to really love Jesus a lot. See, she can't love him as much as I love him because I've been forgiven a lot, but she hasn't been forgiven as much. So to love Jesus as much as I love Jesus, she's got to get out there and do some real good sinning. Maybe strip for a while. Start smoking pot, you know. Enroll at Carolina for a couple of classes. I'm talking really seedy stuff, you know. Bet on the horses, get some tattoos, although that would be hot, right? But if she does, if she does all this really, really bad stuff, then she can be forgiven of some really bad stuff, and then she's positioned herself to love Jesus a lot. Do you really think that's what Jesus is teaching? I hope not, except the tattoo part. I wouldn't mind Lord getting the tattoos, but I, no, I don't think that's what he's teaching. You got to remember, Jesus is responding to Simon's thought. This is what Simon's thinking. I'm not that bad. Actually, I'm pretty good. And I only owe Jesus a little bit because I'm not that bad. But boy, she is bad. She is really, really bad. She owes a lot. But understand, this is what Jesus was teaching. If you don't think that you're as bad as others, you're not going to be as grateful as others. In other words, you see yourself as bad, but I'm not as bad as everybody else, then you're not going to be as grateful to others. So really what it comes down to is there's just some people in every church that think that they're better than others. Their past isn't as bad. Their past isn't as colorful. They don't have as much baggage. The problem is that's just not true. That's not the way God sees it. James says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point from God's perspective is guilty of breaking all of it. Let's say that you just lived your life according to the Ten Commandments, and you never, you lived your whole life, never broke one Ten Commandment. Never, ever. But one day you got up and broke number five, and you decided not to honor your mother and father. From God's perspective, you're as guilty as murdering, coveting, adultery, everything. Or you just got up one day and you decided to covet that neighbor's new car. You're guilty of everything. It's like a chain. You don't have to break every link in the chain to break the chain. You only have to break one link, and then the whole chain is broken. One sin. You're guilty of all sins. So let me ask you a question. Raise your hand. How many of you sinned? Raise your hand. Hold it up. Now, if you haven't lifted your hand, go ahead and lift it because you're a liar. So you've now sinned. You've officially joined the rest of us, right? But my point is, we all sin. But this is what's amazing. When you're self-righteous, when you're better than others, you don't see that. I mean, you think, yeah, I sin. But I don't sin like they sin. So understand the older brother syndrome, it affects how we see ourselves, it affects how we see others. That's pretty obvious. The third one, not as obvious, but most important. The older brother syndrome affects how we see the father. And it's because, see, if you have the older brother syndrome, if you suffer from it, you're so busy thinking about how good you are, you're so busy thinking about how bad everyone else is, you miss just how good the father is. And that's why... The older brother says in Luke chapter 15, verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Well, that's, that's a lie. That's a lie. And I can show you why it's a lie. Go back to the very beginning of the parable, verse 11 of Luke 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between who? Them. You ever seen that before? 
He divided the property between them. You see, when we read this story, we assume that the younger son came and he got his share of the inheritance. Father gave it to him. That's it. But he also, at the very, very same time that he gave the younger brother his share of the inheritance, gave the older brother his share of the inheritance. And if you're familiar with the Bible or you understand Jewish tradition in the Bible, you know that the older brother, being the firstborn, automatically got twice as much as the younger brother, which means that the older brother would have gotten two-thirds of the father's estate, and the younger brother only got one-third. But see, that's how self-righteousness thinks. You're not fair. You're not being fair to me. But I want you to notice the father's response in Luke chapter 15, verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me in everything I have is yours. You are always with me. That represents the presence of the Father. Everything I have is yours. That represents the provision of the Father. And this is what's really sad about this story, the story of the prodigal son. The younger son missed out on the presence and the provision of the Father because, see, he left home. The older son missed out on the presence and provision of the Father because his heart left home. See, he never left physically, but his heart left. And honestly, that's the real heartbreak of the older brother syndrome. You stay home. You still go to church. You still are in your small group. You, you still teach children maybe every once in a while. You give some. You serve some. But your heart's left. Your heart's left. I mean, you're still here, but be honest. You're kind of just going through the motions, right? And this is what I know about Christians that go through the motions. Eventually, I promise you this, eventually you will be bitter you will become angry, and you will become cynical. And none of us want to do that. So how do we avoid the older brother syndrome? I mean, after all, the goal for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, is to grow up in our relationship with God, to mature in our relationship with God. Remember we taught the first week, we want to get our experience to begin to match our position. We're in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal for all of us. So practically speaking, when you think of it that way, all of us should become older brothers and older sisters spiritually. So how do we grow up spiritually? How do we mature spiritually without falling prey to the older brother syndrome? Well, I can tell you this. It, it, the answer isn't just you study the Bible more. That's part of the answer, but that's not all the answer. In fact, Paul, this is what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge alone just make you, make you arrogant. Now, understand, Paul isn't saying that knowledge is the problem. You'll never read anywhere that Paul says knowledge of God's word is the problem. In fact, he encourages us to grow up in our faith by becoming knowledgeable of God's word. So what's he saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1? He's just saying what we already know. He's just saying that knowledge alone makes us arrogant. In other words, if you just learn more and more of the Bible, but you never live it out, you never apply it, it just makes us obnoxious. And every one of us sitting here, we all know knowledgeable, arrogant, obnoxious Christians. And if you're like me, you avoid them like the plague, right? But here's the thing. Knowledge doesn't have to make us arrogant, see. Becoming a mature Christian doesn't have to be synonymous for becoming an obnoxious Christian. I mean, think about this. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, makes us arrogant. This is coming from a guy who wrote 13 of the 27 books that make up the New Testament. I'm pretty sure that's 13 more than any of us wrote, right? You know what that means? As far as apostles go, Paul was the big kahuna. 
I am pretty sure that he grew up. I am pretty sure that he, he matured spiritually. So here's my question. How do you become an older brother? How do you mature spiritually without developing the older brother syndrome where you think you're better than everybody else and you feel like you can look down at everybody else? Let me show you something maybe, maybe you've never seen before. The first book that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, by the way, he didn't write books, he wrote letters. The first letter he ever wrote to a church, he wrote to a church in the city of Galatia. We now have it in our Bible as the book of Galatians. Paul wrote it in 53 AD. This is how he began the letter. This is Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. In other words, Paul writes this letter, and right off the bat, he wants you to know, I am a big deal. I'm an apostle. And maybe you're like that. You want to make sure people know what your title is or the position you hold. Paul was like that, 53 AD. Three years later, 56 AD, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. We have it in our Bible as 1 Corinthians, and this is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. By the way, Paul became a Christian in 36 AD. He wrote this letter in 56 AD. That means that Paul now has been a Christian for 20 years. After 20 years of growing and maturing, Paul writes, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. And if you want to call me an apostle, understand, consider me the least of all the apostles. 63 AD, seven years later, Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. It's the book of Ephesians. This is what he says in Ephesians 3.8. I am less than the least of all God's people. I am less than the least of all God's people. So he starts out by saying, I'm an apostle, big shot. And then he says, I'm the least of the apostles. And then seven years later, he writes, you know, I've been rethinking this whole thing. Actually, forget apostle altogether. I'm less than the least of all God's people. Two years later, 65 AD, one year before Paul is beheaded in Rome because of his faith. He writes a letter from prison to young Timothy. We have it in the Bible as 1 Timothy. This is what he writes in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Think about that. 12 years from 53 to 65 AD, Paul went from being an apostle, big shot, to the least of the apostles, to the least of all God's people, to the worst of sinners. In fact, your translation may say the chief of sinners. Let me show you why Paul never developed the older brother syndrome. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. This is a secret. I decided to concentrate only on Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's what I'm going to focus on. Paul's like, I'm not going to focus on me and how good I am. I'm not going to focus on others and how bad they are. I, I'm just going to focus. I'm just going to concentrate on Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross so I can be saved. You know, we started this series the first week by asking the question, why would we as Christians ever leave home? Why would we ever go prodigal? And we came to the conclusion it's because at some point in our lives, we want to get down off the cross. We want to crawl down off the altar. We want to pursue our own dreams, our own ambitions, our own desires. And we talked about how we have to die to our old self with its plans, its desires, its ambitions, so that we can pursue the life, the plan that God 
has for us. And we looked at verses like, I die daily, or Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. I want you to understand, Paul wrote those verses. Paul wrote those verses. Do you know why Paul never developed the older brother syndrome? He focused on the crucified life every day. I die daily, every day. I'm crucified with Christ every day. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that the same cross that will keep you from leaving home will also keep your heart at home. It'll keep it fresh. It'll keep it passionate. It'll keep it pure. See, make no mistake about it, in the story of the prodigal son, there were two rebels under one roof. And in the very same way, I'm telling you, we have two different kinds of rebels under every church roof. You know, we just kind of carry out our rebellion in different ways. Sometimes, sometimes it involves behavior that's considered detestable, shameless, horrible. But then other times, it's behavior that's just deceitful, self-righteous, proud. See, Both require grace when dealing with them. You know what's always bothered me as a pastor? I think there's a lot of prodigals out there who would love nothing more than to come home. And it's not that they don't love God. It's that they can't stand us. See? And I just hope this is one of those areas where we really, we really check our hearts and ask ourselves, am I an older brother? Am I an older brother? I'm going to ask us to bow. Let me ask you a question, Martin, before I pray. If a prodigal came back maybe to the campus that you're attending this weekend, or maybe you have a prodigal in your family, and they came home this weekend, they came home. If you were the very first person they saw, would they stay? Would they feel welcome, loved? You know, our mission statement here at Hope is love people where they are. We don't want them to stay where they are. We want to encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. But it always begins with loving people where they are. And this is, what, this is what's so cool. Many of you that are listening to me, you came back to God because there's a group of people here who loved you unconditionally, accepted you unconditionally, forgave you unconditionally. But there's something about going through that process and getting on our feet where we have a hard time extending that kind of love and forgiveness and acceptance to others. But boy, I tell you what, for us to stay true to who we are in the vision that God has called us to, we have to deal with this stuff. So Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts and I, I pray that through some way we would see ourselves as you see us, not as we see ourselves. That we're all our righteousness is just filthy rags. It means nothing to you. But we're all broken, broken sinners saved by your grace. May we see people that way. May we see ourselves that way. And may you continue to use us to make a difference in this world. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 